and turn to Leviticus chapter 1. And I found it interesting that Keith's devotional last Sunday was on the book of Leviticus, and he focused on something completely different, perhaps, than what we'll be looking at today. But I find that in this book, there's a number of themes, and a theme that he looked at was confession, which I found to be interesting. The word confession is found three times in the book of Leviticus, once as a personal confession of sin, once was when Aaron confessed the people's sin on the scapegoat, which we'll spend some time talking about today, and then once toward the end of the book, explaining that if the people of Israel were ever to be exiled in that land, no matter how far away they were from God, if they were to confess their sins, God promised to not cast them off forever. And so that's one of the themes that we can find in the book of of Leviticus. So go ahead and turn there, turn to Leviticus chapter 1. I don't know what you think about when you think of this book. It's probably one that you've probably read recently, is my guess. Uh, Those of you that read the Bible through every year probably read Leviticus sometime in the last couple of months. And the book may seem completely antiquated to us or arcane in our modern eyes, perhaps you could say. But it's a gateway to understanding many of the themes that we find in Scripture. And I want to open it up and look, at, look into it in that way this morning, particularly as we think about preparing for communion this evening. And the way that all these themes tie together, I don't know if you've noticed, but when you read Scripture, if you were to read any passage of Scripture, and then it would jog your memory and, you're, and you were to read another passage that's connected to that passage, it's kind of like hyperlinked text in a website. You know, you read one page, you click on a link to the next, and you click on another link to the next. It's all interconnected, incredible, all connected together, and all one big theme about God and who he is. A little bit of backdrop to the book of Leviticus, and you're probably familiar with this, but we will just brush up on that a bit. Ever since the sin in the garden, God was intending, working towards a plan to redeem mankind for himself. We see that right away in Genesis chapter 3. It appears that through the Old Testament, one of God's goals was to develop a people with which he could live, with which he could commune with, with which he could share time with, spend time with. It seems odd when you think about who God is and who man is, but that certainly seems to be one of the goals of the Old Testament, that God would live with his people and that his people would be able to show the other nations who God is. God had miraculously, in the book of Exodus, freed Israel from Egypt by triumphing over all of their gods and by bringing them out through the Red Sea. In addition, God had destroyed the Egyptian army in the process so that the Israelites would not have to worry about them for some time. Incredible. God brought the people to Mount Sinai, there to enter into a covenant relationship with them. When we think about Mount Sinai, we probably often think about the tabernacle, the instructions for the tabernacle and the Ten Commandments. That's probably what first comes to our minds. But what God was really doing there was developing a covenant relationship with his people. God had previously had covenants with Noah and with Abraham, but this was the first time that God was going to have a covenant relationship with a people. 
Not a contract, not a promise, not an agreement, but a covenant, more along the lines of the way that we think of marriage. God had finally come to live among his, his people. He would be their God, and they would be his people. But while Moses was up on Mount Sinai, before he even came back with the covenant, the people broke it by worshiping the golden calf. Now, I want, to, I want us to get a picture of that because I think that's really important for understanding the book of Leviticus. The idea here, I believe, is, this is similar to a man and a woman preparing for marriage, coming to the covenant, and the night before the wedding, the lady is found off with some other man. Can you imagine how that would feel? Men, how would that feel? The night before the wedding, the bride is off with another man. In a sense, that's what the Israelites did here to God on Mount Sinai. He was prepared with the covenant, prepared to make that covenant with them as his people. And they prostituted themselves with another God. And I think understanding or getting a better understanding of that sin and what they did there will help us understand this book in a greater sense. It wasn't some little thing that you could easily blot away. Their relationship with God would never be the same. Never again could they have an open relationship with God. Not even Moses after this time could have an open relationship with God, at least for a period of time. We'll look at that just briefly. Things would never be as they were. After the covenant was broken in Exodus 33, God tells Moses, you take the people, I will not live among them. That's not going to work. I I would consume them with my holiness. There's no way that I can live among them, that I can go with them. It's not going to work. And in Exodus 33, we see the, the conversation with Moses and God and God finally agreeing to come and be with the people. In Exodus 33 and verse 7, uh, it gives the idea that Moses used to set up the tent and and commune with God, but that he no longer could do that after the sin that the people committed. However, in Exodus 34, through the end of the book of Exodus, we see that God gave Moses new tablets of stone, and that Moses built the tabernacle, He had other people helping him. They made the priestly garments. And finally, at the end of chapter 40, all is ready to go. The tabernacle is built, and now God can come and live with his people. It's all ready. The instruments are made, and now God will come live among us. But there's still a problem. At the end of Exodus, we see in Exodus chapter 40, so just turn back a few pages. Exodus chapter 40 and verse 5. Exodus chapter 40, verse 35. Had the wrong verse there. We'll start in verse 34. Then a cloud covered the tent of the congregation, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And Moses was not able to enter into the tent of the congregation because the cloud abode thereon, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Now Moses had been in God's presence before. He was in God's presence on Mount Sinai. He was in God's presence not long before this. He communicated with God, it says, 
as a friend talketh with a friend. But I believe the problem here was because of the sin that the people committed, Moses, as the representative of the people to God, could no longer enter into the tabernacle and be face to face with God. And then in Leviticus chapter 1 and verse 1, it says this, And the Lord called unto Moses and spake unto him out of the tabernacle of the congregation, saying, or I believe we could say, God spoke to Moses from the tabernacle. So Moses was outside and God was inside. And so how would God restore or develop a relationship with a people that is sinful? How would a God who is holy, who has set aside, who is unique, who is set apart, and therefore the space around him is holy, how would that God develop and live among people who are unholy and sinful? Something needed to happen. And so we'll look in the book of Leviticus in eight different sections this morning. Uh, we're not going to go deep into any section per se. We're going to give an overview of the, the book of Leviticus and see how God developed a way that the people could commune with him. How would sinful man live or be close to a holy God? How could a holy God live with sinful man without consuming them in a moment? What would happen the next time the people sinned? Would God punish them again with the plague like he did when they worshipped the golden calf? Would he send men throughout the camp to slaughter the people like he did? What would happen? Section 1 in the book of Leviticus talks about the sacrifices and offerings. And you can scan through the first seven chapters of the book of Leviticus. It talks about the burnt offering and the sin offering, the trespass offering, the meat offering, and the peace offering. There were five offerings here in these seven chapters that it talks about. And I'm just going to break them out and talk about them briefly here this morning. The first sacrifice is the burnt offering. This was an offering to make payment for sins. The sin offering was also an offering to make payment for sins, as was the trespass offering. So there's three offerings here that was a way to tell God, I'm sorry for what I've done. But not only that, telling God sorry for what I've done isn't enough. There still had to be death and there had to be bloodshed. And a little later we'll look into why that was why there had to be death and bloodshed for sin. So there's three offerings here, the burnt offering, the sin offering, and the trespass offering that are all payment for sins. The burnt offering was to make payment for sins. The sin offering was to make payment for sins committed in ignorance or unintentionally. God understood that as people, as humans, sometimes we would do things not intending to be rebellious, not intending to sin against God, that would be sin, and we may not know it till a later time. This offering was intended to be for a person individually or for a group of people or even for the whole group of Israel. If they all sinned unintentionally, they could take the sin offering to God as payment for that sin. And this was an offering that was required if you sinned unintentionally. The third offering that was payment for sin was the trespass offering. And this was to make payment for sins that were specifically against God or against others. This was a sacrifice to God, but it also required restitution to others as well. Now, one example that I found of restitution, and there's several in this passage, 
was to provide 120% of the value. So if something was lost because of something that you did to someone, you were to provide restitution of 120% of the value of that item. So not only was there, uh, did the trespass offering require payment for sins, but also restitution for what was taken against others. There are two other offerings in this passage, which are offerings, ways of saying thank you to God, giving back to God for what God has given to us or to them. The meat offering or grain offering was one, and the fellowship offering or called here the peace offering was the other one. The grain offering was to bring honor to God, acknowledging that all we have comes from him, and the fellowship offering was just an expression of thankfulness. Now, what are some things that we can observe from these first seven chapters in Leviticus? There's five offerings here. One of the things that stood out to me is that detail was extremely important. Very important. Sometimes it was a goat. Sometimes it was a lamb. Sometimes a sheep. Sometimes a bull. Sometimes the priest could keep some of the offerings. Sometimes they could not. Sometimes items were burned and sometimes they were not. Details, details, details. And everything is spelled out in minute detail that they were to keep. In the case of offerings for sin, the sacrificial animal dies in their place and atones or covers for their sin. And this goes back to what uh, Jason read in Hebrews chapter 10, where it talks about what Jesus did for us today. But these sins were, these sacrifices were, were a continual reminder, not only of God's grace, but also of his judgment. Not only that uh, God is merciful to them, but also of his wrath. A constant, continual reminder of the seriousness of their sin and the consequences for it. And if I'm honest with myself today, I think I miss some of that. I think I missed some of that. God intentionally, I believe, set up these sacrifices so that people would constantly see my sin has consequences. No, I might not be dying, but something has to die. It might not be my blood that is being shed, but this animal's blood is being shed as a result of my sin. And sometimes I wonder if the easy believism believe say the prayer, and you're saved. If that attitude in modern Christianity today hasn't seeped in for us a little bit, and we're missing some of the, of the depravity of sin, not only the depravity of sin, but what it costs, what sin ultimately costs. Even though the lamb or the goat did not commit the sin, it was punished and lost its life as a result And the blood flowed, thousands of animals. The blood flowed, thousands and thousands of animals and gallons of blood. The animal died and took on on the wrath of God so that the people did not have to. So that's the first section, sacrifices and offerings in chapter 1 through 7. The second section, turn to chapter 8. Here it talks about the priests. The priests are ordained. And in chapter 8, again, we see a lot of detail a very detailed process for the priests, what they should wear, the sacrifices they should present, and how they, they would be consecrated. And Aaron and his sons in chapter 8 
were consecrated as priests before God. Now in chapter 9, turn there, turn to chapter 9 and scan down through there. Moses calls Aaron to offer the first sacrifices of the new, for the newly consecrated priests. And you can almost hear the people collectively holding their breath. Would God accept the sacrifice? Would the priests do it right? What would happen if they did it wrong? We're coming here before Almighty God. What if something goes wrong? And you can almost see the sweat on Aaron's brow and his trembling hands. And I'm going to read some verses in uh, chapter 9, looking at, starting in verse 6. The very first sacrifice that's being made as Aaron realizes that he's coming before an almighty, holy God. Chapter, chapter 9 and verse 6. And Moses said, this is a thing which the Lord commanded that you should do. And the glory of the Lord shall appear unto you. So Aaron, if you get this right, the glory of the Lord will appear. And Moses said unto Aaron, Go unto the altar and offer thy sin offering and thy burnt offering, and make an atonement for thyself and for the people, and offer the offering of of the people, and make an atonement for them as the Lord commanded. Aaron therefore went to the altar and slew the calf of the sin offering, which was for himself. Then in verse 12, and he slew the burnt offering, and Aaron's sons presented unto him the blood which he sprinkled round about upon the altar. And then I'll read yet verses 15 through 21. And he brought the people's offering, and took the goat, which was the sin offering for the people, and slew it, and offered it for sin as the first. And he brought the burnt offering, and offered it according to the manner. And he brought the meat offering, and took a handful thereof, and burned it upon the altar, beside the burnt sacrifice of, of the morning. He slew also the bullock and the ram for a sacrifice of peace offerings, which was for the people. And Aaron's sons presented unto him the blood, which he sprinkled upon the altar round about, and the fat of the bullock and the ram, the rump, and that which covereth the the inwards, and the kidneys and the cob of the liver. And they put the fat upon the breast and burned the fat on the altar. And, And the breast and the right shoulder Aaron waved for a wave offering before the Lord, as Moses commanded. And the people are watching. What will happen? Will this actually work? The way that God prescribed for sin, will this actually work? Verse 23, And Moses and Aaron went into the tabernacle of the congregation, and they came out and blessed the people, and the glory of the Lord appeared unto all the people. And there came fire out from before the Lord, and consumed upon the altar the burnt offering and the fat, which when all the people saw, they shouted, And fell on their faces. Can you imagine? It worked. God accepted the offering. And again, you can almost hear the gasp as people realize that God accepted the offering that they had presented. But then again in chapter 10, in a wild twist, things turn terribly wrong again. Aaron's sons, in in the beginning of uh, chapter 10 there, Aaron's sons, Nadab and Abihu, violate flagrantly violate God's holiness, and they're immediately consumed. And this is a strong reminder to us again that living in the holy presence of God is dangerous. That living in God's holy presence is dangerous as sinful, as a sinful men that we, sinful people that we are. 
Another example, there are several examples of this found in the Old Testament. Another example would be in 1 Chronicles 13, 7 through 11, when they were planning to bring the ark, the presence of God, to Jerusalem. David had asked that they bring the ark to Jerusalem, and a man named Uzzah was helping to bring the ark, and as they were going along, the oxen stumbled. And the Bible says that Uzzah reached out to steady the ark and that God's anger burned against him. He was not to touch it. That was not in his place, and he died instantly. And this thing displeased David, and because of this, David was afraid to bring the ark to Jerusalem because I think David understood something that we sometimes miss, and that is that being in the presence of God can cost you your life. Being in the presence of Almighty God can cost you your life. Now, eventually, they did bring the ark to Jerusalem. But God's holiness is serious. God's holiness is serious. And as a result of that, in section 3 in Leviticus, and we'll be looking at chapters 11 through 15, and you can start scanning down through there. In section number 3, we are called, or the Israelites were called, to live a life of purity before God, to live a life of purity before God. These are ways that I need to keep myself pure, that the Israelites had to keep themselves pure so that they could approach God. And if they were not pure, they were not to approach God. That was very clear. Because God is holy, I need to be pure or clean if I am to enter into God's presence. So there's a few ways in this section, if you look through, if you scan through chapters 11 through 15, there are several ways that the Israelites could become impure. One was contact with body fluids. One was having a skin disease, touching mold, touching a dead body. Now, I think it's important to notice here that none of these things were sins as such, but they represented death in some regard, and death is the opposite of God, who is life. And therefore, contact with these things, though it did not constitute sin, but interaction with these things was not okay in God's presence. Now, in many cases, these things would be unavoidable. Somebody dies, and you're at their funeral, you're interacting there, you come in contact with a dead body. But until you're clean, you stay away from the presence of God. There was nothing wrong with being unclean per se, but what was wrong would be to just enter into God's presence as if you are clean. That would not be okay. And God makes that very clear in this section. This was a constant reminder of God's holiness and the reality that relationship with God affects every area of my life and that I must be aware of that if I want to have a relationship with him. Section number four is in chapters 16 and 17, and this talks about the Day of Atonement, and I would call this the climax of the book of Leviticus. The Day of Atonement was one of the holy days. Um, that It's also mentioned a little bit later in the book, but this is a section where it gives a longer description of this one day in particular. And as I understand it, this is the only time that Aaron and the priests were to enter into the most holy place to be before God. And he was to bring a bullock for a sin offering, 
which he is to offer for himself and make atonement for himself and his house. That's in 16, verse 6. And then, he's, then he is to take two kids of goats and cast lots on them. Take two and cast lots. One was to be offered as a sin offering to atone or to cover for the sins of the people. The blood of this offering was to be taken into the holy place and sprinkled on the mercy seat. And I don't know if we can fully grasp what this day would be like. Being there and watching this process, taking the two goats and watching the lots be cast. Now, neither goat is going to get away. They both have a significant punishment. One goat was taken in, killed, and the blood was taken into the holy place and sprinkled on the mercy seat. And the other, on the other, Aaron was to confess the sins of the people on the other goat and send it out into the desert, never to return again. And in verse 10, it indicates that this second goat was also provided for atonement or covering of sin. And it's a powerful illustration of what, what God did with the Israelites' sin and what he can do with our sin today. And that is, cover it with the blood, and secondly, remove it into the desert, never to see it again. Incredible. And this is something that they would do every year. Every year, they would have the Day of Atonement. And every year, they would be reminded that my sin needs to be atoned for, and that God, as that second goat is going out into the desert, my sins are going with it, never to come back again. Section number five is in chapters 18 through 20, so you can turn there and scan through that briefly. One thing that I did want to mention in section four, in chapter 17, uh, it explains that there's two things that you were not to do Um, one was sacrificing to any other god. I think that's pretty clear. The other one was to eat blood. Both of these things were punishable by being cut off from the people. And in addition, in chapter 17, verse 11, it indicates, it gives us, I believe, an understanding of why blood was required as a payment for sin. For the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it to you upon the altar to make an atonement for your souls. It is the blood that maketh an atonement for the soul. So this wasn't just some random thing that God thought up. There was a very deliberate reason why God required blood as payment for sin. Section 5, life of purity or living a life of purity with others. So section 3 was living a life of purity, and this section 5 is in particular in our in relationships with other people. And this is found in Leviticus 18 chapters 18 through 20. So you can turn there and you can scan down through those chapters. So there are ways, because I am to live with this holy God or in the presence of this holy God or before God, there are ways that I need to live to keep myself pure before God. There, and these ways of living in purity with others included sexual integrity, caring for the poor, Treating others fairly and justly, 
Uh, One example of that is don't put a stumbling block before the blind. Don't be partial in your judgment. Uh, Don't judge your friend any different than you would judge your enemy. Show respect for the elderly. And there's a a number, a list of, of various laws in chapter 19 and various different areas of life and how we relate to each other. So these are ways in which the people were to live that was different. This was unusual. This was different from the way that the people around them lived. And this, again, was to be a constant reminder that they, that they were different, that their God was different, that their God was holy, and that if they wanted to live in the presence of the holy God, they had to live in a different way. And it was also a reminder to them of God's holiness and their responsibility to others as a result of that. Section 6 is found in chapters 20 and 22 where it talks about the qualifications for priests. This included roles about not approaching the dead unless it is a close relation. So for other Israelites, if you were to approach the dead, you would be unclean for a period of time. But for the priests, they were, not, they were held to a higher standard yet. They were not to approach the dead at all unless it was a close relation. There were also rules about who they could marry as priests. And they had to be physically without blemish. And they, had to, they were responsible to make sure that everything that was sacrificed to God was completely pure. They were called to the highest level of moral integrity and holiness because they were to actually enter into God's presence. Can you imagine entering, actually entering into God's presence. Yes, they were taking a sacrifice. Yes, they had everything prescribed and what they needed to do, but actually entering into the presence of God. It's almost like when you're close to high voltage lines and you can hear the buzz and you know that there's a danger there that gives you, that gives you an understanding. There, there's something here that's dangerous and I don't want to mess with this. And I kind of feel like maybe that gives us a little bit of an understanding what, what it would be like to enter into the presence of the holy God. There's something that's dangerous here. And that was the responsibility of the priests. So they were to represent the people to God, and they were also to represent God to the people. And as a result, they had to live, they were called to live at a higher standard. I find it interesting that today we are called to be priests, and Jesus is our high priest. So we certainly are called to live to a higher standard as Christians today. The last section in the book of Leviticus is found in chapters 23 through 25. And in this chapter, you see numerous feasts and celebrations. Each one was a deliberate reminder of what God had done for them in redeeming them and in taking them on their way to the promised land. Again, these feasts were a constant reminder of who God was and what God had done for them and how they should live in response. To help us understand maybe in a small way of what this would look like or what this would feel like, I think one example of something that we do today to remind us as a constant reminder of who God is and what he has done for us is communion. And I wonder sometimes if I've taken that a little bit too lightly, if I've not taken that seriously enough, 
Because that's a time where we can deliberately get together and talk about and think about what God has done for us. We do it twice a year. I know there's groups of people that do it more. There's groups that do it less. I don't think it's that critical how many times it's done, but I think it's important that it's done. And what is our attitude when we come before God tonight in communion? What is our attitude? What are we thinking about? So there's a, a, a whole list here of feasts that God asked his people to celebrate. Feasts and celebrations. The Passover, that was pretty clear. That was when uh, the angel of God, the angel of death, passed over um, the people that had the blood on the doorway and killed the firstborns in Egypt. Unleavened bread, first fruits, feast of weeks or Pentecost, trumpets, the Day of Atonement, which we talked about in additional detail, the Year of Jubilee, Tabernacles, and there's probably a few more in there that I missed. But what I find interesting is that God wanted the people to deliberately set aside time to think about these different aspects of what God had done for them. Because God understands that we are forgetful people, and unless we do things on a regular basis, we tend to forget And then the final section in the book, chapters 26 and 27, one final reminder from God for his people. There's two main themes here. One is that obedience would result in peace and abundance, and unfaithfulness and sin would result in disaster and eventually exile. And boy, did those words ever come true as we look at the future of this nation. So what was the result of all this? What was the result of Leviticus? If we look, and maybe I'm taking this out of context, and you can call me out if I am, but if you look at Numbers 1, verse 1, we see that the Lord spoke to Moses in the wilderness of Sinai, in the tabernacle of the congregation. Leviticus 1, 1, God spoke to Moses from the tabernacle. And in Numbers 1, 1, God spoke to Moses in the tabernacle. And so it appears like the book of Leviticus did what God intended for it to do, and that is restore relationship with the people and with Moses back to God. Moses was the representative of the Israelites, and now he was able to enter the presence of Almighty God. So I have a number of things here that I would like to conclude on. We kind of quickly took an overview of the book of Leviticus, And we could spend a number of time, multiple sermons, looking at different themes and aspects of the book. It's packed full. But I want to conclude on a few things here and give us a few things to think about as we look at this book and then we think about communion this evening. First of all, I want us to be careful about how we look at books like this in the Old Testament. Because in our secular culture today, and even in and even some in, in more conservative or Christian culture around us may describe the book of Leviticus as weird, strange, legalistic, or even barbaric. They may say things like, well, the sacrifices were something that God used because many other cultures at that time used sacrifices. This was God's way of using something that other cultures were doing to help his people understand the message that he intended. In addition to this, we may find ourselves skipping the book of Leviticus 
as we read through the Old Testament, or maybe reading it quickly, or glazing over it, or losing interest in what we read. And in a sense, I can understand why. There's a lot of detail there. It's like, well, does that really apply to my life today? Or we may say things like, I'm so thankful that we don't have to do all those rituals today, or we may even be embarrassed by all the bloodshed and the odd things that God required and requested of his people. But I would like to challenge our thinking and the thinking of those around us. And I'm, I'm not thinking of necessarily only of people that are unbelievers, but in Christian culture around us. I think we need to challenge the thinking of even some conservative Christian culture around us in relation to this book and in relation to the Old Testament. Because I don't believe that God simply took a pagan practice and somehow took from that and made it into something that he could convey his message to the Israelites. The idea of sacrifice and bloodshed goes all the way back to the first sin in the garden. I think it's very clear that blood, shed, and sacrifice was God's intention all the way back to creation. And that Jesus' sacrifice and bloodshed is the cornerstone of our beliefs, and in reality, it's the cornerstone of the whole of human history. If you take that out, if you take the life of Jesus out of history or out of our beliefs, everything else crumbles if you take out that cornerstone. And so the core of our beliefs is built on sacrifice and bloodshed for sin, and I think we want to be clear on that. In addition, Leviticus is a story of God graciously providing a way for his people to live in his holy presence. And I see Leviticus really as the turning point in the Old Testament. When God established a way that sinful man could come into his holy presence without being immediately consumed. I don't see, yes, Exodus talks about it a little bit, but I don't see a lot prior to this where God made a way. God made a way that sinful man could come before him. Incredible. And so I believe that in a sense, Leviticus is a turning point in the story of the Old Testament. And so as we view the book of Leviticus, we see another L word in a very real way, and that word is love. You see, God did not let his people go on their journey to the promised land without him. He mentioned that. He mentioned that to Moses. I'm just going to let them go. I can't be with them. If I'm with them, I will consume them. But God did not, did not allow his people to stay there like he had suggested after their sin with the golden calf. He did not leave them to wander around on their own and only to watch them from a distance. Neither did he allow his holy presence to consume them in a moment as it nearly did a few times. Rather, God lived among his people in spite of their shortcomings, in spite of their rebellion, and in spite of their sin. And then beyond that, he provided a way by which mankind can come and commune commune with him. And so, in conclusion, the book of Leviticus points us ultimately to Christ and what he did for us. But it's also important to note that the rituals the sacrifices, the feasts, the offerings, the work of the priests, 
and living a life of purity were not, was not designed to be an end in itself. As a matter of fact, we see what happens in the, in the New Testament when we look at the response of the religious leaders and Pharisees. We see what happens when a people takes these sacrifices, feasts, offerings, living a life of purity, and makes it an end in itself. Rather, these were ways to be able to live close to a holy God. And again, if these other things, if, if these rituals take on value or importance in themselves outside of connection to God, they become idols and gods and false religion, as they did for the religious class in Jesus' day. And I want to think about that in relation to communion. What really are we doing? What really are we celebrating? What are you doing? What are you thinking about? Is this an end in itself? Is this just something that you do because you do it? Or is it a connection and a reminder of what Jesus Christ has done for us? Is there power in what we do there tonight? And so what does this mean for us today? God is holy. God cannot tolerate sin. And God will pour out his wrath on sinners throughout all eternity. And we are all sinners. But God provided a way in the Old Testament for the Israelites to live with God. And God provides a way for us in the New Testament, a way that we can live with God. But the reality that we can live with God in no way diminishes who he is or what he thinks of sin or the fact that hell exists. It doesn't diminish that at all. Rather, I believe the key in the book of Leviticus is that it points to a God who is loving and kind, gracious, and merciful. Let's kneel for prayer.